Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown, a look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. The world will be much safer if the U.S. resumes its place as a leading force for progress in the world. The world needs the USA and what it, what it has been uh, historically. It's a vital, vital role because we, we, we have something to tell the world about freedom as well as progress. Uh, and we've lost our way on that, completely lost our way. That's our guest today on It's Our Money, historian Anton Chetkin, whose new book, Who We Are, America's Fight for Universal Progress, from Franklin to Kennedy. Hello and welcome. I'm Walt McCree, Senior Advisor to the Public Banking Institute and Ellen's co-host. As you can tell from Chaitkin's opening comments about the United States, he views U.S. history as founded on an optimism and capacity for creating good in the world, building on a natural interest in making progress and contributing to the well-being of our world on all levels, and doing so as a natural outgrowth of our constitutionally established freedoms. Chetkin says that this is who we really are as a people and a nation. And he starts describing the ways that that's true by looking at the life of Benjamin Franklin, a world-acclaimed master of so many intelligent, diplomatic, scientific, economic, and strategic talents that follows through all the way to John F. Kennedy, both men of principle and integrity. In his conversation with Ellen, and we dedicate this whole program to that conversation, you'll hear how the great macro settings of commerce and government shaped nations and empires, and how the evolution of America brought great blessings to the world as a whole, both from economic and political impacts, but also from ethical, civil, and social aspects. Part of this history is how the world of money and finance has transformed these bedrock values into something much more mundane and exploitative instead of contributive. How the ingenious developments of science and technology in the last century have been replaced by a corrupted and corrosive world of financial profiteering, which is even eroding the freedoms that the United States was founded upon. Indeed, the morphing nature of monetary systems and cartels are in the process of returning us to a period of economic feudalism in which the money masters control all aspects of our lives and have taken over our political system, undermining and disabling the true democratic governance that was intended by America's founders. It's an interesting discussion, and one that we think you'll find a little shocking when you consider that the good citizen role that America has played on the world stage has been undermined by a nefarious agenda of self-interest and profit at all costs, spreading grief instead of good to others. 
Stay tuned. Let's join Ellen and Anton now. It's my pleasure to be speaking once again with Anton Chikkan, who is a historian, former political activist, and author of three books and hundreds of articles. His latest book is Who We Are, America's Fight for Universal Progress from Franklin to Kennedy. So your book is, it's in history, but it's really a page turner. I have a, um, a good friend who has a teenager who is flunking history because it's just not interesting but you actually make it interesting and you put a a different spin on it than we usually get but that's what makes it interesting is like this is what was really going on here to understand the influences evolved and the and the players the actual players and you support what you've written with quotes and letters and all sorts of footnotes etc so people can check it out for themselves but that that also just makes it interesting to to hear their voices and uh, today we're getting a sort of dark view of america of our history and of our foreign wars and we're sort of seen as the aggressor but that was not who we are i mean that's what you're writing about is who we are we, we need to revive our sense of the good things about America and what what we were about in the first place and what we should be about again and could be about again. So anyway, do you want to just give us a little overview? I mean, I've... well, if you want to make history interesting, you have to depart from the idea that we have a continuous philosophy from the beginning of our country to now. The great fact of the present day is that the, the United States is now governed by people who, and a, a clique and a, 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 an oligarchy that hates what the United States has been historically. And the United States history is one of accomplishment and of uh, a, a, uh, an in, engagement with the rest of the world on the exact opposite philosophy to that practiced by the marauders who are in charge of the United States today. Let's cut to the chase on this. And I'm going to, I'm going to concentrate on the, the relationships between the United States and Russia throughout our history so that you can see the different philosophy that built the power of the United States. Uh, Russia and the United States are natural allies. And uh, they have co- a common interest. And the people that are ruling the United States today are completely opposed to the national interest of the United States. I mean, that's just a brutal fact. What do you mean by that, opposed in what way? Well, I, I just want you to, it's not that I disagree. I want to look at, look at uh, what's called the rules based international order and contrast that with what, what we did to, to make ourselves a great power in the United States. If you look in Wikipedia, uh, it will tell you that, that aspects of the liberal international order, the same thing as this rules-based order, are challenged by populism, protectionism, and nationalism. We'll get to what, what these things mean in a minute. 
And they say that the, the liberal international order is challenged by authoritarian states, illiberal states, and states that are discontented with their roles in world politics. R China and Russia have been characterized as prominent challengers to the liberal international order. Further, they talk about what they mean by authoritarian. Let, let's see how that applies to think of Russia and China as authoritarian states. And that's true in, in many respects. What about the United States? Restraints on the legislature and political parties. Well, are our, is our Congress independent? Who believes that? They're wholly owned by an oligarchy. Are our political parties independent? Or in, in most senses, different, except on, on fighting about cultural nonsense. Legitimizing a regime by appeal to emotion, as in combating enemies. Freedom from censorship and surveillance would be show you that it's not authoritarian. Well, we have all those things. This is totally an authoritarian regime, not the constitutional regime, but the regime that governs the United States would be that. Now, let's look at this phrase, states that are discontented with their roles in world politics. These are people challenging the order uh, in the world. I'm going to paraphrase the Declaration of Independence of the, of the United States. It became necessary for our people to dissolve the political bands which connected them with the British Empire and its rules, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. In our view, it was God that made the rules for the world. We don't need any international authority to make rules for us. And that was our Declaration of Independence. So I want to follow to, to get a sense of not only who we are historically, but what is this distortion of the relation between the United States and Russia? Who decided Russia is our enemy? Let's follow this. Just a few highlights uh, for, for, for these two centuries. First of all, in our revolution, the Empress Catherine, Catherine the Great, established the League of Armed Neutrality, and that was to uh, block Britain from uh, using international trade to crush the American Revolution. So they, had, they, they organized Europe to basically keep our side free of British control in, in international trade. When was that? That was in, during the American Revolution. That was in the 1770s, going into the 1780s. And, and what did Re Catherine, Catherine Russia the Great, the, the, Zari, the Tsarina of Russia. And how, did, and how did she do this? Where is she? She organized the other countries in Europe, most of them. Uh, France was on our side, but the other countries were generally trying to stay neutral. So the Russians organized a league of armed neutrality that meant that all the, sh the ships, the commercial ships of, the, uh, of, the, of these neutral countries working together would be armed to defend themselves against British attacks. Britain is fighting the US. Britain wants all these other countries to stop trading with the United States. And Russia 
and, and these other countries agreed with Russia, said, we're, we're not going to have Britain dictating to us who we can trade with. We're going to trade with the United States and anyone else we want to. And so this stopped the British from using their sea power to crush America by crushing our trade. Uh, they were definitely on our side. Ben Franklin played a great role in organizing that, both through his science networks and through his uh, diplomacy when he was in France. He was very, very well respected in Russia. When our first recognized ambassador to Russia was John Quincy Adams. Uh, he went there in 1809. And he was very close friends with the czar, Nicholas. And he arranged that the inventor, uh, Robert Fulton, would work in Russia to build steamboats there. He had just invented the steamboat here in the United States. So our ambassador in Russia, Quincy Adams, said, let's have uh, Fulton come to Russia, build steamboats, and use that to help industrialize and modernize Russia. The Russians loved it. The wars of 1812 interrupted that. Later, John Quincy Adams was president of the United States. When he was president, he put out federal land grants, if Congress went for this, to complete the canal system, uh, to build up our navigation internally. Uh, this is before railroads. And then he, uh, President Adams assigned army engineers to build our first railroads, to, to design the, the railroads which were commercial, but, but the government was, was in charge of designing them and there was, they were all got subsidies from different levels of government. One of the engineers that he assigned was named uh, George Washington Whistler, an army engineer. Later on, that same US army engineer was hired by the czar, Nicholas in Russia, to build Russia's first railroad. He, he went in the 1840s. And the Americans built the locomotives right there in Russia. They set up a shop there. And the uh, American army engineer built the, the, the Russia's first railroad from Moscow to St. Petersburg. In the crisis of the Union, 1860-61, Russia was America's only ally. Tsar Alexander II freed the slaves of Russia. 20 million Russians were serfs were slaves owned by the, the, the noblemen. He freed them the day before Lincoln's inauguration. He was coordinating with the United States in its crisis. During our civil war, Russia sent its fleet to New York and San Francisco to warn away the British and France not to intervene on the side of the Confederacy. Our transcontinental railroad was built under President Lincoln. U.S. government financed it, 60 million from the government, 4 million from private finance. Uh, it was completed after Lincoln's assassination. The chief engineer was General Grenville Dodge, who had headed military intelligence for General Grant in the Civil War. When Russia built its own transcontinental railroad, the Trans-Siberian Railroad, from Moscow to the Pacific Ocean, this same General Dodge was an advisor to the Russians. And the Trans-Siberian Railroad started in the 1890s was a joint American-Russian enterprise. The equipment was supplied from the United States. Pennsylvania, largely Pennsylvania companies that had been started up by the political revolution of President Lincoln back in the 1860s. The Carnegie Steel, Pennsylvania Steel Company, Sparrows Point Steel Company made rails, made the steel. Westinghouse based in Pittsburgh built the 
the uh, uh, air brakes, electrical apparatus, the bridges, cars, all made by American companies. Tens of thousands of American workers working on this. Uh, we were also building uh, 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 equipment for China and for Japan. Uh, what happened to that? That was under President McKinley. Uh, what happened is that the uh, McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist, uh, really a network that was based in Britain and replaced by Teddy Roosevelt, who was a furious Anglophile and a racist and, a, and an imperialist. And we, we broke our relations with Russia in, in the way they had been for a time. Uh, the, the British made an alliance with Japan and had them make war against Russia. That was the opening shot of a world war organized by Britain to break up our friendship with all these other countries. Germany, France, uh, Germany, Japan, and Russia had all been our friends and industrial partners. Then go fast forward to President uh, Franklin Roosevelt. He built great dams, the Boulder Dam, previously called Hoover Dam, the Grand Coulee Dam, Bonneville, these are, and the Tennessee Valley Authority. The Western dams, uh, the chief engineer was a guy named Edgar Kaiser. Uh, and he, he, in World War II, uh, Kaiser built the Liberty ships that supplied our allies, Britain and Russia, with the tools to fight Hitler. One of these was called the Novorossiysk that went into Russia. They had a lot of equipment coming from the U.S. Russia lost 26 million people fighting for the United States against Hitler and for themselves. In 1943, Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill met in Iran, in Tehran, at a conference. They made an agreement to open the second front to have the U.S. invade the Allies invade France, which had been blocked by Churchill up until that time. While Roosevelt was in Iran, uh, he made a plan, he and General Hurley made a plan to develop Iran with modern industry, to end its poverty, make that the, the poster boy for, for developing the underdeveloped countries. And the idea was to use Iran's oil to let Iran use its own oil and, and use that to pay for the development of Iran, not, for, not by US taxpayers. Just let these countries develop. We could supply some technical help. At his death, the whole British imperial faction took over uh, the US and launched the Cold War, which was absolutely unnecessary. We didn't like communism, but we wanted to have world peace guaranteed by the USA, Britain, Russia and China. In 1954, the, the British intelligence and US intelligence had a coup to save British control of Iranian oil. And they overthrew the, Iran's democratic government when they tried to use Iran's own oil according to Franklin Roosevelt's plan. This led to the loss of faith in the United States. We had a lot of coups like that, overthrowing democratic governments that were trying to use their own resources. Uh, when Kennedy came up to be president, uh, he was for returning to this previous idea that America is not for British imperialism, that we are for each country to allow it to be rise, to rise into power of its own power, use its own resources. 
so he made an arrangement with the president of Ghana to build a great dam in Ghana uh, to industrialize West Africa with electricity. The chief engineer on that project was Edgar Kaiser, who had built the dams in our West under Roosevelt and had built the Liberty ships. Kennedy proposed in, in our wonderful space program that lifted up the United States to the forefront of industry again, Kennedy proposed that we should have a joint moon program with the USSR. And he made a fabulous speech about peace in 1963 at American University. Everybody should see that. And I believe that he was killed by the imperial faction in the CIA and the Pentagon, which is now the instrument of these globalist usurpers that are ruling the United States. Throughout our history, our own development, our own progress has always been in, in conjunction with, the, with in, a, in a generous and open uh, friendship with the other countries of the world. Not a, not a military alliance, but friendship. Each country ruling itself, like our Declaration of Independence says. And every country having a natural right to rise to be a power in the world. That's the natural order of things. Not this insane drive to World War III that the United States and Britain are, are doing under the present regime. Very interesting. You talk a lot, of course, and I've talked a lot about the American system and the British system. And you trace the British system, let's say the British system is the feudal system of conquering nations and exploiting their resources for the benefit of the mother country, right? And suppressing development in the colonies. And if, if you can't catch them physically as colonies, you capture them by debt. And so then you have this sort of uh, economic feudalism. On the, on the American side, of course, there's Benjamin Franklin, who was instrumental in developing that whole system with his uh, European colleagues. But, but even before that, there was what you could call the British system. Anyway, can you go into that? Like the, the roots sure. of both of these systems. What the American system is, is sort of followed on uh, what France did under the Colbert, who's the finance minister for uh, Louis XIV, a brilliant man who, who believed in the progress of the country, manufacturing and so forth, and used tariffs and used, used various forms of government intervention to promote creativity, manufacturing, and science. So the United States, when, when we were founded as an independent country, there was a, 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 a fact that is not very much taken into account today that we faced in the world. And that is that the British had at that time were just then in the process of making a tremendous breakthrough in their control over nature, in, in this, developing a steam engine, building canals throughout England. Uh, these things were the accomplishments of a, a set of individuals and a spirit very much in accord with the Renaissance, which is England's heritage along with other countries, the Renaissance of Shakespeare and of, of, and, and of Florence. This is, was just going on. And by the time we did our revolution in the 1770s into the, into the 80s, the British Empire 
not this creative element in England, but the, the, the East India Company and the City of London financiers, guided by the, the philosophy of selfishness, of in really insane, vicious philosophy that the human population is, is a pest in the world and that people are garbage and can be simply crushed. This is not the spirit that actually invented the steam engine and did these creative things. So the British adopted a, a philosophy which they tried to impose on the world, which the U.S. rebelled against, which was that no other country besides Britain would be allowed to develop manufacturing or modern skills. Now, was this in Britain's interest? No, it was in the interest of this, this imperial order, which was growing rich in the city of London and in some other places. Later on, it, it, it involved Wall Street. But this was not interest of the people of Britain. Well, having industry was, but that was started up by this industrial revolution. The empire did not create the industry. The industry actually helped the empire conquer other countries. But it's not the way that you actually develop wealth. Wealth comes from science. It comes from industry. It comes from good workers and good management, developing enterprises that control nature and that engage the, the skill and creativity of, of people. What, what the British Empire did was to try to stop that creativity from developing in India and in Ireland and through political intrigue in the United States by pushing this idea of free trade, meaning the United States or any other country did not have the right to interfere with the monopoly of, of British trade. Would they, we, we, according to them, we didn't have the right to put a tariff on imports of cheap British goods coming into our country, so, which prevented us from even manufacturing. It's a monopoly. We wanted freedom to trade, but you first have to block that monopoly from crushing everybody. That's the issue. At that time, up until the 1840s, Britain had complete tariffs on their own goods. They were only saying that other countries couldn't have tariffs. That's their free trade system. So this is a complete fraud from the very beginning. They call this now the liberal international order. And by liberal, they mean free trade. They also mean woke ideology. And rather than what you might think of as liberal, as free, open, and generous, which is the, you know, the way somebody like Benjamin Franklin or George Washington would have would have talked about this. That's not what it means now. The, the whole idea of free trade is this idea of the, the, the imperial system. And it's, this, it's the same idea today. Another way of putting it is cheap labor. Henry Carey was the chief uh, uh, strategist for the people backing Lincoln in, in, in the Civil War. And his idea was quite simple that in order to advance the interests of the US and every other country, you have to raise the value of labor, make workers valuable by engaging them in capital intensive skilled industries. If they're valuable, they're not gonna be sold into slavery. You value more from their, you make your profits from their skills. 
that's the way to stop the African slave trade, make African workers valuable. He said, we got to build, give machinery to Africa. This is in the 1850s he's talking about this. Uh, Virginia ought to have manufacturing. The most radical Southern slave owners opposed manufacturing because they were little dictators in their own social set, in their, in their part of the union, and they were part of the British imperial trade system. They exported their cotton to England. So every country needs to have these skills and raise the value of labor. That's not our system today. Today, we try to say that the so-called free market is not really freedom. It means seeking the cheapest possible labor and not interfering in the market. For example, people produce commodities in an African country or in Bangladesh, they produce something. And they're supposed to sell this to the market without interfering at all, whatever the market gives them for what they have. So each country is supposed to face this giant combination of interests and just give up whatever they can produce and, and submit to them. That's ridiculous. That's not how we became a great power. We put in tariffs. We organized government finance transportation. We had a national banking uh, of different kinds throughout our history uh, at various times where the credit was guaranteed to be offered to industry and to entrepreneurs and to states and to various projects. Uh, we didn't have the government owning the industry. We had the government making sure that our people were free to produce at a high modern level. That's the American system, as okay. opposed to this imperial system. We're listening to a conversation between Ellen Brown and historian Anton Chetkin, which brings to light the background historical settings that help us put into perspective where we find ourselves in our own era of economic operations and where we came from in past periods of historical development. The dynamic global economy of our time is a relatively new phenomenon that has dramatically changed some of the principles of economic growth, in part by replacing the productive accomplishments of industry with the pursuit of financial profits through transnational speculation. Let's rejoin Ellen and Anton as they discuss what may be forthcoming in the form of more independent economies. Somebody asked me this on, on an interview. I argued that Michael Hudson said that, that these sanctions are forcing Russia to do what they, what they were reluctant to do themselves, which is to develop internally and develop their own industry. And it looks like they're going to do the same thing to us. I mean, if we're cut off from cheap labor, like you say, abroad, then we'll have to f develop our own industries. But that means paying much more for labor, which means prices will go even higher, although they're already high. I mean, I, I would argue if you put the money into uh, productivity, then if you raise the wages and you raise, you know, you raise um, demand and you raise supply, then they'll balance out. But I just wonder what you're your thoughts on that? I mean, what's well, coming if with this new, if we get cut off from being sole global reserve currency? I mean, I, I think that's a good thing, really. In the long run, it's a good thing because it it will, will allow us to develop our own industries and it will get us out of this $30 tr trillion debt that we have to keep 
creating more and more dollars for a, a world that's hungry for them. I think that the, the first thing we have to face up to is the fact that we are in a terrible danger of a world war, that we, mu we must engage both Russia and China, first of all, in security, mutual security uh, issues. We have to guarantee that we're not at the verge of a nuclear war. This is realism. This is acting as parents to our children rather than si simply uh, uh, following blindly to something that will have us all killed. So that's, that's our first step. Going back to de development, I don't believe that the United States would on its own redevelop manufacturing or even take care of our infrastructure. I think that that would only happen in conjunction with other countries, that the needs of the United States for progress in industry, in uh, infrastructure, in living standards, in education are so deep and so these are needs are so unmet that you need to have the shock of recognizing the facts facing the world today. China and secondarily Russia, but also many other countries that are more orienting towards them, like Iran, uh, some African countries like Ethiopia, India, that, that don't go along with this, uh, this insane so-called Western rules. These countries are oriented towards building industry and raising living standards. We are not. The United States, for, for many years now, has been solely a destructive influence in the world. You have to keep in mind that in the past, we were the most constructive influence in the world. And, and the United States was looked to as the fountain of creative industry, of inventions, of, and, of, uh, and of offering to share. Edison had partners throughout the world. Uh, the, the US uh, space program developed into something really beautiful. This, went, this goes way back, oh, these, these engineering uh, things that I've been talking about, the railroads and, and the, the sharing of our, our capital goods and so forth. We have to recognize the reality of the world and that, that there's two central facts that I, 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 would, I would bring to everybody's attention. Fact number one, China and Russia are at the center of a system of production and development of industry. Russia's struggling now because of many circumstances, but they, their, their point of view as allies is to develop industry and infrastructure and ha have national sovereignty. And the United States, the other fact is that the United States changed, violently changed our system, particularly after the triple murders of the Kennedy brothers and Martin Luther King. We changed our system from being a nation guided by developing industry and higher living standards and helping other countries to do the same. We changed to the opposite to be just like the British Empire did when they were in India or in Ireland. 
This is a primary fact facing the world today. And you can't get around this by, by I think it would be, it's a, it's a fantasy to say that, the, that simple conditions will force us, if we're cut off from the outside world, is gonna force us you know, to go back to what we did right in the past. I think that what's going to what's going to change it is the is people in the United States, together with people outside, challenging the regime in the United States, because that they, they are destroying our country as well as the rest of the world. There's no you can't you can't just talk about what's happening in Ukraine. The United States is a is a terrible, destructive influence in the world today. There's nothing that we are doing that's helping to bring order or progress to the world. This is the fact. And until we see that as a change, not simply, as you, as you pointed out at the beginning, we're told all of these crimes that the United States committed in the past. Yes, we did commit crimes. We committed crimes against the Indians. We committed crimes against Black people kidnapped from Africa. But the United States also was, was the leading country helping develop mankind's progress in the last two centuries until about 50 years ago. That's a fact. So it's the change in the U.S. that we have to focus on. And we need to change back. But we're going to have to do that in, 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 in coordination with other countries that are doing good in the world, regardless of how we don't like their governments. What government is good? Point to a good government right now. That was the same thing back in the old days. We, we, we dealt with the czar. We dealt with communists under Franklin Roosevelt. We dealt with the king of France in our revolution, who was our ally. It's not up to us to tell other countries who's going to be their leaders. We have to develop our own power and be friends of other countries. And that's it. Then we can, we can survive and we can flourish. Because every country has the same interest. They all need the same things, don't they? Really, they need to eat. They need to have progress. They need good wages. Yes, what you said, you can't simply raise the wages by raising some legal thing. I think it's good to raise the minimum wage, but it has minimal effect. What you have to do is build industry. You have to bring, and that's going to be by very large projects to start with infrastructure projects and trade deals with other countries where we're helping their infrastructure and they're helping ours. We're gonna need help from the outside. We're very backward in so many different ways. So yes, if you build up your power to produce on a modern basis, capital intensive industry, really modern 21st century industries, uh, then the productivity of labor will be so high that wages will have to be raised because you employers are competing for labor. That's that you want to you want to set up a situation where labor is so valuable that you must pay them high wages. That's the way you can afford it. That's the way it works out. It seems to me all these things can be tools for good or tools for ill. For example, capitalism. I mean, capitalism was is yeah. how we produce stuff, but it's also a way of exploiting or things that people are worried about now is like central bank digital currency which could easily you know could or you know any kind of 
currency where they can cut you off for your political beliefs or whatever, you know, cut you off for things that are not connected right. to your earning power or that, you know, the money you have, or even I've seen like taxes, everybody thinks that the wealthy are too wealthy and we need, to, there needs to be some way to shrink their wealth. But this idea of taxing unearned income or whatever, I mean, as soon as you establish that precedent, they'll be cutting into everyone's unearned. Well, anyway, you can see where all these things can, yeah. can be used as tools for ill. So we're at, a, it seems to me we're at a critical place where we do need to rebuild the system. Um, we need a reset or what they used to call a, you know, a jubilee. We need to start out. We need to level the playing fields and start all over. But it's difficult figuring out how to design a system. And we need a better political system for starters, where our politicians are not controlled by big money, which is what they are. You know, the big lobbyists pretty much write, write the write the legislation. And if you don't vote for it, you don't get you lose your seat in Congress, which is your job. So you basically lose your job. So it's tricky. I like, I like a, your word. I love your word jubilee. It's going back to the biblical idea of a, a periodic, uh, you know, relinquishment of debts. Uh, but it's based on the idea of the most fundamental human right, which is the right to be be treated like a human being. And this is not so easy to, to think about. You have to start by identifying a human being the way a, an adoring mother and father look at a baby. Look at the potential for this child in the future. And we're going to give that child everything we can to make that child uh, you know, a, a, a free, a, a thinking, a serious person, a, a competent person, you know, confident. And, and we want to establish an environment for them to uh, flourish in so that their life could, could, they could make a great contribution and we'd be so proud of them. If we uh, identify human beings in that way, that they are, a human being has infinite potential. Uh, just like that adoring parent sees in their own favorite child. Then we are, we're guaranteeing that we're gonna come up with the right kind of, of political and economic system. That the system has to be designed for the maximum creativity by all the people really, that every human being can contribute in one way or another. That's, that's your sense of what it means to be human. And if you support that as the basis for your society, you're going you're gonna to succeed. What do we do now instead of that? Look at, look at the sanctions that we have imposed on countries like Iran and Russia. What's the purpose of the sanctions? As, as President Biden has said, they're not to deter them from doing something wrong. They're to crush them, crush their countries, crush their people, so that their people rise up against rulers that defy us. This is almost a perfect definition of evil. 
of an evil practice because you are saying that human beings are simply an instrument for gaining the power to work your will on the rest of the world. You don't care what happens to people. Uh, so this is what we're doing in, in Ukraine. Instead of seeking peace there and guaranteeing security there, uh, and instead of even engaging with Russia uh, on the, the control of nuclear weapons, the control of, of the whole system by which nuclear weapons are launched, we're not doing that right now. There's no contact right now between our militaries, which we had all throughout the Cold War. We don't see human beings, uh, that is the ruler's stone, don't see human beings as worth anything. This is the greatest danger. This is the problem. This is where the monkey sleeps. This is the, the issue. And so when you look back at the founding mission of the United States, Franklin expressed this, Hamilton expressed this, other people did so in identifying the government and the nation with the idea of progress and the idea of creativity. So uh, this means that the, you, you need a powerful government, but what's the power? The power is not over the people. It's the power to interfere where you are blocking private power or foreign power that is crushing human beings. That's all. That's what you need. And also there's certain kinds of things that government is needed for, services that, that, are, that, can't, be, that can't or shouldn't be done privately, uh, police and, and the military also. You know, the private military is a terrible idea. But the idea of, of, of making breakthroughs in science, the, the, the government is a good place to have encouragement for these kinds of real leaps in creativity. Everything should be around developing the, mo the most advanced powers in every individual in the country. And you have, to have, you have to have political freedom to do that. You have to have freedom of speech. You have to have an elected government. The government has to mostly leave you alone to do, to do you know, your private interest. But the spirit of the country is encouraging the kind of creativity that is in service of mankind. All of the science that's been done, is, is, uh, that's been really creative, has been the opposite of Ayn Rand. This idea that selfish interest is what drives us forward. Baloney. A company needs a profit. A scientist needs a good income. An inventor needs to make money to be able to do what he's doing. But that's not what drives it, and that's not what it's about. Science is not about money. It's right, about, it's really art. It's really the, the joy of art, of creating something. That's right, that's yeah. right. Just yeah. people have to relax about profit. Profit is simply where you produce more than you consume because you're, you're doing something competent. Yeah, and that's why, of course you right need now. that. Of course you need that. that is, does that mean that some billionaires should run the universe and crush everybody? That's just insane, that's just a lie. Yeah, it made me think of two things, two things I wanted to comment on. Um, the, on the Sumerian debt jubilee, Sumeria was actually a feudal society. I mean, the king owned everything. 
you will own nothing and be happy. It was actually the original model for the feudal society. And the people just ran up a tab, you know, with the, uh, for what they spent. And when the, when the harvest came in, then, then they were, um, it was deducted from their tab and they ran up debts and the debts got too high. And so the king was the creditor. So the king could forgive. And that's a, that's why we can't really do a debt jubilee now because the creditor is not the government. The creditor is private banks. So that's tricky working that out. Wasn't there a, some yeah, sort of- Yeah, it was there, but they didn't actually do it. Apparently there's, according to Michael Hudson, there's no actual record of uh, the, the Jews doing a debt jubilee. They just wrote about it, that it was a good idea, but it came from Babylonia, which came from Samaria. And, you know, the Jews were in captivity in Babylon for 600 years or whatever it was. And they picked up a lot of the culture and that's where they got that idea, apparently. So anyway, it's, I mean, it's something yeah. we, we need to, those are all things we need to work out. We've got to get rid of that huge debt. We've got to make a system that's, you know, a political system where our governments really are responding to the will of the people and not to the will of big money. And how we do it is a bit tricky, it seems to me. But anyway, it is, you know, as everybody says, uh, never let a crisis go to waste. And this is certainly a crisis. So interesting times if we can work out the solution. In my second volume, I'm going to be uh, going into the the great revolution brought on by the presidency of Abraham Lincoln and his allies who, who uh, were very important in getting him into the presidency, particularly Henry Carey uh, and a circle around him. Uh, these were in private industry as well as uh, for a time, setting the policy of the, of the government. This was not Wall Street. This is Philadelphia and some other people and some in the military. And these companies and these uh, projects were everything that we did. Massive new projects. Uh, the, first of all, they, they were the sponsors of Edison in his development of electricity. I, I'm going to show how Edison, not Tesla or some other fake history, Edison broke the power of Morgan and Wall Street over his company, which had been established because he had to get he had to beg for money when the Wall Street bankrupted these nationalist industrialists. So when he did his they were his original sponsors. And he had to go to Wall Street to get some money for a demonstration of electricity. They tried to stop him from building power plants. So Edison broke with them, had a stockholders revolt, got back control of his own company, and with, this, with the help of this group in Philadelphia, started building the first power plants in the world for the public, not on Wall Street. That was a demonstration. But in, the first power plants were built in Pennsylvania, uh, in the coal country. Uh, Sunbury and some other towns. Edison personally was, was on top of this. And it was his company that actually built the plants in these different towns. He made agreement with cities all over the United States to start up utilities with municipal backing because Wall Street was trying to stop it. And that trying to stop it lasted for decades 
Roosevelt had to set up the Rural Electrification Association and build these great dams to get the electricity to the great part of the American people that were denied electricity by Wall Street controlled utilities. They were not in the business of supplying electricity. They were financiers. So, you know, people talk about big business and it's, a, it's just a mishmash of a concept. People don't quite get the real history of this thing. You have a spirit that comes from this imperial order in London and Wall Street, the slave owners, the, the worst of them, the political guys in Virginia and South Carolina, but, but the city of London financiers and, and J.P. Morgan, what's the, and Rockefeller, their spirit as financiers was purely malicious. It was anti-national and it was based on a, a, a shocking hatred for the the idea of a human being. What, what, what classical philosophers and, and the greatest human religions have identified as the human soul. They're, they scorned that. They hated that concept. They're real villains. And, and so this is not industry. They didn't build the industries. They sucked the life out of them. They destroyed the railroads. They destroyed the cities. They they gave, they gave our industries to poor countries because they could pay low wages and keep them under, under a dictatorship of foreign finance. That's not, the, that's not what built up our country. That's not how, where we got our high standard of living. We had a different idea. The government played a very strong role in that. But it, it, you have to start with the idea of progress and the identity of a human being. And this gang that now is running this terrible uh, idea of crushing Russia and crushing China, uh, it, it, it goes back to this faction that has always opposed U.S. progress. And they oppose it right now. They're, they're, they, they're completely opposed to elevating the United States in terms of its interests, in terms of its manufacturing, in terms of it, the space program, in terms of the kind of relations, friendly relations that we would need with other countries. You need world trade. You have to have world trade to have a modern society. Does that mean that every country should be a slave of the international market? No. You, you have cooperation between countries and each country is serving its own interests but being friends with the other countries. Uh, it's much safer world to have a multipolar world to have a lot of different countries having power, a lot of different races, a lot of different languages, and the world will be much safer if the US resumes its place as a leading force for progress in the world. The world needs the USA and what it, what it has been uh, historically. It's a vital, vital role because we, we, we have something to tell the world about freedom as well as progress. Uh, and we've lost our way on that, completely lost our way. Yeah, that's a good place to wrap up, I think. We definitely need to find our way again. Or as uh, Lincoln said, you quoted Lincoln, that we need to uh, appeal to our better angels. <laughs> the America's right. better angels, yeah. We'll need those angels. Yeah, we need to remember what's good about 
our history, who we are, and that's what your book's about. So that's great. And I'll be Thank looking you. forward to your next one. <laughs> Thank you, Ellen. It's great. All right. I've been speaking with Anton Chetkin, whose latest book is Who We Are, America's Fight for Universal Progress from Franklin to Kennedy. His websites are whowearebook.com and antonchetkin.com. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.